Welcome to Enemies of the People. A podcast about extremism in the 21st century. Hello, frenemies. This is Maria Norris. How are you doing this week? Last week, I opened up about having a hard time, and you were all so wonderful sending me kind messages, and I appreciate it so, so much. Thank you. As some of you know, I'm an academic. My research area is terrorism, white nationalism, extremism, and national security strategy. I'm currently an assistant professor at a UK university, where I lead on the terrorism modules. In fact, I teach every Tuesday, so the same day that this podcast goes out. (laughs) All this to say that I am deeply embedded in terrorism studies as a field and as an industry, just like my guest today, Dr. Anna Meyer. Anna is an assistant professor like me, and her focus is on institutional responses to white supremacist violence. In this episode, Anna and I talk about her research, white supremacy and terrorism in Germany, the UK and the US, but we also talk about the state of the field of terrorism studies and the many problems we, as early career researchers, encounter in our work in this field. Talking to Anna was really therapeutic. We recorded for a long time, and I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Oh, and just FYI, the quality of the recording is not as brilliant in the first few minutes of the show, but it improves quickly. Now, without further ado, here is Anna. I'm Anna Meyer. I am an assistant professor in the School of Politics and International Relations at the University of Nottingham. So obviously, I am American, not British. And I research institutional responses to white supremacist violence in the US and Europe. So I'll start with a question, which is, you know, the million dollar question, the question that started me in my academic career. And um, I have the sense it's a question that leads your research as well. It's, what is terrorism? Oh, how long do you have, Maria? I mean, the sort of short answer to that question is that terrorism is a political tool that governments use to designate what sorts of contention they view as legitimate or illegitimate along very predictable lines based on existing power relations. So white supremacy, patriarchy, all of the usual suspects. I take a very similar approach. When I look at terrorism and uh, I have a I finished a manuscript for a book called Empire of Terror, which is looking at the the roots of the term of the concept terrorism here in the UK, tracing it back to the empire and how very much the argument of the book is that, yeah, I'm very excited about it. And the the key argument of the book is very much that modern counterterrorism politics, counterterrorism powers act as a modern tool of empire. They replicate what terrorism Mm -hmm. powers did during the empire. And uh, and that is a very British genealogy of terrorism, as it were. But you come to it from an American perspective. So in in your opinion, what is the the genealogy, the root of the word, the concept, the powers of terrorism in um, in the US? Yeah, it's a good question. I think in the US context, Obviously, our imperial history is different than the British imperial history and is deeply entangled with our own history of indigenous genocide and slavery. But I think it gets at a lot, the roots of a lot of the same questions, just maybe the targets of our quote-unquote counterterrorism efforts historically have been a little bit different. So if you want to sort of trace where ideas about terrorism come from, 
in the U.S., I think you have to start in the late 19th century and the aftermath of the Civil War, where ideas about the relationship between Black Americans and white Americans were being renegotiated, often much to the consternation of white Americans. And so over time, during the Cold War, you see these two ideas intertwining and sort of this characterization of the Soviet communist as less white, where, or contrast that with immigrants from Cuba to the U.S., for example, who were perhaps trying to escape a communist regime, who suddenly were allowed entry into the concept of U.S. whiteness because they were anti-communist. And so I think even today, as we are much more focused on racialized Muslims as sort of the source of quote-unquote terrorism. At the same time, you also see attention, somewhat lesser attention, but still attention devoted to environmental activists and TIFA in the latest iteration. During the Cold War, focus on white Americans who participated in far-left groups like the Weather Underground, or even student organizations like the Students for a Democratic Society. Essentially, the word terrorism, you know, the label, the concept is one that is very much historically been used to been used and associated with the other yeah the other in the democratic society and it's interesting because in both in the uk and the us we see that it is essentially rooted in 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 white supremacy be it with the empire or in the civil rights movement and that has a a a clear indication um not indication a clear implication to how people, states, the media, etc., understand terrorism in the modern era, because we both argue through our work that white supremacist terror is not considered at the same level as Islamic terror. Oh, yeah. One of my continual frustrations in my work on white supremacist violence is when I talk about white supremacist institutions within the state or structural white supremacy, this insistence among a lot of both scholars and practitioners that no, that's not related to white supremacist, quote unquote, terrorism. That's not related to white supremacist violence. These are distinct things. And when we say white supremacy in the terrorism studies community, I think we often mean neo-Nazis, which is not wrong, but is incomplete in a lot of ways. And so what I try to do in my work is, is broaden that and say, no, there's a continuum here. There's a broader ecosystem in which white supremacist violence, outright physical violence becomes thinkable within white supremacist structures and enabled by white supremacist institutions. And if we can't name that, and really notice those links, then I don't think there's much hope for us in really getting at root causes of white supremacist violence. Yes, and I think there's also this idea that people hold in their heads of when you talk about white supremacy and white supremacist violence, they think of the Klan. They think of uh, men yeah, in white yeah. hoods. And, and that's it, that, you know, that's the only form that white supremacy can take and that's white supremacy, white supremacist violence can take. And I get a lot of backlash, you know, when I talk in my work about how the UK government is a white supremacist government and, and the history of white supremacy in the UK. And people are like, no, there's not a clan. <laughs> We're not Americans. <laughs> how dare you say that? But it's, it's this failure of imagination, isn't it? To really be able, not just of imagination, but failure to name what's right in front of you. Yeah, and I, I think also this desire to relegate white supremacist violence and by extension white supremacy as something of the past that like, we can acknowledge that, yes, this was bad, this was the Klan. I also do work on Germany. And in that context, you sort of have the idea, these were the Nazis, this was Hitler, it was awful, but we've moved past it, we've reckoned with it. And now what we have nowadays is nothing at all like that and is 
so much less concerning, which has been an interesting subversion to see as particular members of the government, particular politicians start to become more concerned with the white supremacist threat as it becomes more and more inescapable as we see large high profile attacks that we see people then turn back to like, okay, so how did did Germany deal with the Nazis? How did we in the US deal with the KKK? And in doing so sort of uncover that the Germans and the Americans never really dealt with these things, not in any deep, meaningful, transformative way. So it is sort of this really vicious cycle where we continue to be incapable of naming structural white supremacy and recognizing how insidiously entrenched it is in our societies. So interesting that you mentioned Germany, and I know that your work focuses on that a lot because I grew up in Austria and obviously Mm -hmm. it's a different country than Germany, I'm aware, (laughs) but we have a very similar history when it comes to neo-Nazis and Nazis and, and, and all of it. And uh, so Going to school in Austria, uh, we very much learn about what happened in the Second World War. It's not sugar-coated in any way. There's no roasted mm-hmm. classes. We took field trips to concentration camps and all of that. And I still see when I go back to Austria to visit my parents, more than ever nowadays, neo-Nazi symbols and neo-Nazi graffiti. And you also have very extreme right parties getting power in Austria. And what I find fascinating and where the question (laughs) to you is coming is that when it comes to comparing, for example, the white supremacy, white supremacist past that England or the UK has with the empire, there's no confrontation of it at all when it comes to education. And there is confrontation of what happened in Germany and Austria with white supremacy during the Second World War through the education system. But even so, you say that there hasn't been some kind of proper reckoning with it. So is that why we see white supremacist groups coming back in those countries as well? I think it's part of it. And I do want to be very clear that, like you said, the sort of, for me as an American, the distinction between how Germany has dealt with, and Austria probably too, has dealt with the Nazi past versus how the US, for example, has dealt or not dealt with uh, its history of slavery, there there are big distinctions here. The one that always sticks with me is in Berlin, the Holocaust Memorial is only steps away from the federal parliament building. You can see the federal parliament dome from the Holocaust Memorial. You can walk there in a couple minutes. And so it, the equivalent in the U.S. would be if we had like four and a half acres on the National Mall out in the open uh, memorial to slavery which is just un- unthinkable in the, in the U.S. context. So there are differences. But when I'm getting at the sort of deeper reckoning or lack thereof, I think there is this continuous des- desire to historicize white supremacy, to put it in the past, to think of it as something that can be com- overcome in one go. Um, you do the work and then it's done and you never have to do the work again, rather than mm-hmm. an ongoing practice of anti-racist education, anti-racist activism, anti-racist institutional transformation, which like multiple, multiple lifetimes of, of work, not something that can be done in a couple of decades in a couple of public instances of remembrance, which are good, but I question sometimes who they are good for and who they are making feel better about the past and whether that is actually helpful at all to Jewish communities, to communities of color. Yes. And it's interesting because it ties back to what you said is that we tend to think, but we are saying everyone, we tend to think of when we're talking about white supremacy, 
of the Nazis and neo-Nazis if we're pushing into the modern era, but we are not thinking of it as a structure. You know, so the Nazis in Germany and Austria were dealt with. That's in the past. We can move on now. We acknowledge it. We historicize it, but it's not part of our present. Yeah, no, definitely. Olivia Bertazibwa, who's at LSE, has a really nice metaphor that she uses in her work, which she calls the Hitlerian connotation or the tendency, especially in Europe, to associate white supremacy with Hitler and the Nazis, and that those terms are considered synonyms, which both does this historicization, wow, talking, this historicization process that we've been talking about and relegating this to the past into one very extreme instance in the past, um, but also then doesn't really help us think about white supremacy as an underlying structure. I think I feel like we've made this point several times now, but it's something that other academics and politicians certainly don't seem willing to acknowledge that white supremacy is an institutionally embedded component of Western global North former colonizer uh, societies. And if we, and again, if we can't name that, then I don't think we've actually ever had a real reckoning with a Nazi past or a past of slavery and how that and that then enables that past to continue having effects going forward, much stronger effects than it might if we were to actually sit down and have a national conversation or some sort of mass reconciliation type of event. I'm being very vague here because that's getting towards areas that I don't work in. But in trying to think of what this could actually look like, that would be more about reparations and, and restoration and remembrance and not simply if we hold a memorial event we shall be done now. Yeah, it's done. We, we, we've solved white supremacy. Oh, Let's move yay, on. finally. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, yeah, it's fascinating because our research is very similar. And what I, the way that I look at things, that I approach things is very much through the perspective of stories. So terrorism as a story about state power, terrorism as a story of violence. Oh, and yeah, yeah and, 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 and in my book, I which hopefully I will sort out an agent and a publisher for in the near future. But the way that I, that I look at it, it's very much how is it that the UK government has constructed its story of terrorism, its story of terror, of what terror is and what it isn't, where it comes from and where it doesn't. And through in, in order to do that, I've analyzed in detail all of the UK policy papers on their counterterrorism strategy. So mm-hmm. the contest papers here, not just Sorry, prevent. Yeah. And what I found astounding, really, is that the government has developed a really detailed and complex story on what Islamic terrorism is. It's a very flawed and racist <laughs> story of what um, Islamic terrorism is, but it is detailed. It goes, it has hundreds and hundreds of pages dedicated to history and, you know, key figures and all of it. And they don't do the same for far-right extremism. Even when far-right extremism is included in the strategy papers from 2011 onwards, it's just, you know, a paragraph saying, we are also concerned with far-right terrorism. It's also a problem. And then they move on. Like there is no explanation as to what it is. Where does it come from? What is the ideology? Who are the key figures? What is the history of this threat? When you've spent hundreds of pages explaining one threat versus not explaining the other threat at all. So for me, it's this failure to tell a story of what terrorism is, of what far-right extremism is, that fails to securitize far-right extremism in the UK. And, But I also think that the reason why 
they, that story is not being told is because that is a very complicated story that would implicate the government. And they cannot do that. They're not self-reflective enough to be able to do that. Yeah, at least not publicly. Most of them. I don't, I can't speak for the UK as clearly, but in my work, parts of part of what I do is I talk to bureaucrats, staffers, civil society actors, um, parliamentary staffers or congressional staffers in the US, people who are either tasked with formulating counterterrorism policy or are then charged with implementing it in some way or in some way have some impact, some input into the actual process of, of doing counterterrorism. And one thing that I've always found very interesting in talking to US government, people who have worked in government um, or who are currently working there, is that they when they're anonymous, they're very willing to say, yeah, there's no real political will to push this forward. If we were to do this, it would actually implicate a number of sitting politicians. This has become, as time goes on, less and less of a secret. But this, even several years ago, when there were less overt, perhaps, white supremacists in the U.S. Congress, still something that people would say is like, yeah, there's no political will to do this. It would be really dangerous. But publicly, of course, under their own names, they they don't say that because it would be, it's well, for staffers of color, dangerous. But, but for white staffers, just political opprobrium, they would never be reappointed. They would never be reelected. Well, staffers, so they wouldn't be rehired. Um, but it's such an immediate shutdown. And the, the example that comes to mind, and this isn't a novel example, it's been talked about a lot in the US, but I'm not sure how well known it is outside of the US. And so after 9-11, in the first decade-ish of the 2000s, there was a unit at DHS led by an analyst named Daryl Johnson that was focused on the far-right threat in the U.S. as it appeared then. And a lot of the analysis that his unit did was very, very basic, sort of related to the military, to veterans, and simply making the statement that far-right extremism as it relates to the military might be a thing, might be a problem. Like not... Like, really, and, and I'm being a tad bit snarky here, but like really basic, foundational, factual claims. Um, this, when it was released in 2009, this caused such an uproar in Congress. Like, the very basic statement that far-right extremism in the military might be a thing. That there were calls for then DHS Secretary Janet Napolitano to resign. The, the entire unit that, pu- that published this report was disbanded. As I understand it, don't have firsthand experience, but as I understand it, focus at DHS on the far right, on white supremacist violence after that particular incident uh, was never the same again. It was never as strong. Not that it was, a, it was particularly strong in the early 2000s, but just the sort of energy in the government to assess these kinds of threats is really decimated because there was such this enormous public political backlash to, again, a very simple factual statement that now, uh, especially after the January 6th insurrection, has the entire country, that might be an exaggeration, has one <laughs> political part, has one political party in, in an uproar uh, and, and the leadership of the military to its credit, very concerned about this particular problem. So it's just, it's interesting to see that evolve, but I think also gets at the larger point of there is so little, <laughs> virtually no political will to say things about white supremacy publicly if you are somebody who works in government, because doing so is career suicide. 
And it's so interesting because, as you said, with the January 6th insurrection and the Proud Boys and all the uh, attention that has been given to it and all the investigations, it's become very clear how deeply embedded white supremacy is in the military. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it shouldn't be surprising to us that institutions that fundamentally exist to be the arm of force for the state end up being places where white supremacist ideologies and white supremacist behaviors are, if not explicitly encouraged, and I don't want to suggest that they are, but they fit well into that sort of framework because the ultimate goal of these institutions, right, is to be supportive of state interests. And if we're talking about governments in former colonizer countries, there are going to be structural white supremacist elements to that, even if particular people pushing forward particular policies are not themselves overtly racist. That's how structural white supremacy works. It doesn't have to be intentional to be there. And so it's not, I I always am a little bit like, this is not surprising (laughs) that we see these sorts of behaviors cropping up in the military. I think in some other countries, the problem is even deeper than we've acknowledged in the US. Germany, I think, is the obvious example here. There was a period of time in Probably it was at its peak in 2019, but really going back a few years before that and still happening now, where it seemed like every couple of weeks, there was another story that came out about, oh, a special forces unit was shut down because members were found to be participating in racist WhatsApp groups, or an entire police unit is under investigation for participating in a racist WhatsApp group, or an, or an intelligence officer who was supposed to be investigating far-right WhatsApp groups is instead now in trouble for joining the WhatsApp groups. I don't want to, to like rag on WhatsApp too much. It's not just WhatsApp, but that came up a lot. Um, and like the, the level of activity that takes place and not necessarily overt neo-Nazi activity, but more, I don't want to say lower level, but I'll, I'll say more mainstream racist and anti-Semitic comments that get made in our security institutions, I think are something we have to take seriously as part of this conversation. Again, it's not just the overt neo-Nazi, modern day Ku Klux Klan type individuals that we should be looking out for, although of course they are a huge problem that needs to be addressed. But the environment that enables them to continue to show up decade after decade after decade is this larger permissive environment where saying racist and anti-Semitic and Islamophobic and xenophobic things is just quote unquote locker room talk is just sort of part of the culture of a lot of these institutions. Hello, frenemies. I imagine some of you may notice that my voice is a little bit scratchy in this episode. I think I'm just tired and hopefully my voice will be better next week. I wanted to take this time to say that the winner of this month's book club giveaway is Rebecca Lewis Horn. Congratulations, Rebecca. Look out for an email from me this week for more information. I can send you Strong Men by Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Remember our January book club discussing Strong Men will meet this Saturday, the 5th of February at 9.30pm. There is still time to join the book club by becoming a monthly member over a coffee. The link is in the episode description. I have so much to say about this book and I cannot wait to talk to you all about it this Saturday. I also wanted to take this time to read this five-star review by Rue Runs. 
enemies of the people, thoughtful, insightful, a really good discussion on every episode with knowledgeable guests, would highly, would highly recommend. Thank you so much, Rue Runs. If you've enjoyed the show like Rue, please rate and review us. We are a small show and every little helps. And honestly, they just make my day, so thank you. And now, back to the show. a very crucial point when you were talking about how it is not that we're saying that everybody in the military is a white supremacist, but that the military itself is a white supremacist structure and institution. And what does that mean? And I think that that is a, it's a difficulty when talking about these issues because people go straight onto the defensive. You know, I'm not a racist. I'm not a white supremacist. What are you talking about? But we're not saying that everybody in, in the military is a white supremacist or a racist but that the institution was designed for a very particular purpose. Exactly. And any, like not to be too academic, but any scholar of institutional design will tell you that part of what strong institutions do is carry their original intentions and and frameworks forward. And that those can be twisted or changed over time, but it's difficult to sort of get away from the roots of institutions, even if they were formed decades centuries ago. I mean, <laughs> I hesitate to say now I'm going to talk about critical race theory because if I, haven't, <laughs> I haven't been canceled already. I will now. But this is, this is like for people who don't know, this is what critical race theory is at its core. What one of several core ideas within critical race theory is the idea that even if you were to remove all quote unquote over racists from our political institutions, those institutions would still be racist um, because they were designed that way. Uh, and they exist within this larger white supremacist system. So that's the problem I think that we're really confronting when we talk about white supremacy in the military or white supremacy in the state is that these institutions, even if nowadays many people within them, most people within some of these institutions are not overtly everyday racist, they're working within a system that if not actively encouraging racist policies to go through is not doing anything to discourage those policies. I'll, I'll paraphrase, and I'm going to butcher the exact quote here, but from feminist scholar Sarah Ahmed, who said in her wonderful book, Living a Feminist Life, which I would highly recommend, not, per- not perpetuating white supremacist institutions requires doing more than simply not intending to perpetuate them. Intention is not the same as impact. And I think we really see that in institutions that were designed for white supremacist purposes and continue to fulfill those purposes, even if the people now running them don't intend for them to do that. It also comes straight into this tension that people get when we're talking about, especially in the light, um, in the aftermath of, of Black Lives Matter, about abolishing the police, right? Mm-hmm. Is that that is the argument, is that the institution itself is the problem. And it was because it was designed that way. Yes. And and then we get into a question that you and I talked a lot about <laughs> outside of this podcast, which is if we talk about abolishing the police or in our case, in our own field about abolishing the current counterterrorism terrorism apparatus, people will say, well, then how will you deal with crime or how will you deal with terrorism if you no longer have the counterterrorism apparatus? And we see a lot of this, it's this failure, this, this difficulty, and, and I think sometimes failure to really imagine the possibilities Imagine a society that is not built, that is not um, constrained by these very old and outdated and incredibly damaging institutions. 
Exactly. Uh, and the, the funny thing about all of this is that even if we are bad at imagining, and by we, I mean collectively, largely white people, we don't actually have to because abolitionist thinkers and activists and Black political thinkers have been doing this for decades. These are not new ideas. And sort of when people come back and say, well, okay, what if you were to abolish the police, for example, um, what would an alternative look like? How would we even begin to think through something like that? Like, well, here are a bunch of books you can read by Angela Davis and Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Mariam Kaba that tell you how, how this could look. And you don't have to agree with their ideas, but I think pretending that people have not thought this through and it's just a knee-jerk uh, reaction to being upset with police violence is not the right way to read it and is really disrespectful, actually, to an enormous volume of both scholarly and non-scholarly work that people who have really thought through this. And one of my qualms with people who do work on well, all sorts of terrorism, but especially far-right extremism and far-right violence, and you and I have talked about this offline, is a failure to engage with that literature, a failure to really acknowledge both uh, Muslim political thought, Black political thought, writings out of abolitionist traditions, out of activist traditions in the U.S., in Europe, by people in cultural studies, uh, in Black studies, in gender studies, and queer theory, which as I sort of layer those terms on top of each other, it's like, oh, this is where people start getting uncomfortable. But I, I would encourage people to get uncomfortable with those literatures that are going to look and feel a little bit different from what they're used to, but are talking about the same sorts of phenomena, but just coming at them from different angles and reaching very different conclusions. So to sort of return to the, to the idea of like, what would abolishing the police or abolishing the counterterrorism apparatus look like and how there's a failure of imagination there. I agree. I think that at the same time, there are also so many blueprints out there for folks who are curious about this. And I, the a first step is just being willing to engage with those and, and just sort of think more broadly and let yourself think more broadly before working in tandem with people who are already doing this work to really imagine different futures. I think getting a bit controversial, what this is making me think about is this tendency that white male academics and white male um, experts, as it were, in the field, tend to have of the first time they encounter something, they believe they're the one that's discovered it, and mm -hmm. completely overlook the entire history of work that's being done on that subject, which is usually being done by scholars of color and women of color. Oh, this is like, and, and again, not to be too academic about it for, for your listeners who aren't academics, but I have a lot of space for, for folks who are encountering something for the first time and are surprised by it. I have less space for them when they say, oh, no one has ever thought about this before or studied it before. If it's new to you, that's in and of itself probably interesting information, either about yourself and where you might need to do more sort of investigative work and more reading on your own time and, and more education, but also more broadly about how members of certain identity groups do and don't interact with material. I know that I, as a white woman doing this work, like there are certain kinds of backlash that I will simply never personally experience. I'm in a much more secure position doing this research because of identities that I possess. And I take that very seriously, but I also then try to be more conscious about the time that I spend with 
people and writers who are from different identity groups who are who are Black, who are Muslim, who are both, who are neither but belong to some other minoritized identity, uh, and really think through what they have written about it and what their experiences are. Because there, for for white people, there is often very little that that's actually new. We are just frightfully ignorant uh, of most things that don't directly implicate us. I call it the Columbus syndrome. You know, when white men come across things and suddenly think that they've discovered it. <laughs> yep, <laughs> they 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 are the they discovered it. They are the it's the first time they've read it, so that means no one else in the world could have possibly have talked about this in the past. So therefore, they've discovered it, and it's frustrating when you see it in social media and on the news, but it's even more frustrating, I think, when you see in academia, because precisely what you said, as academics, we have been trained to do research and to look for sources and to reference those sources. And when I see it, and I know you see it as well, this being done in books and academic journals and stuff, people presenting this research as new without referencing the work that has come before it is extremely frustrating, but I also find very offensive for the scholars who have been putting in the work to do that. Yeah, and it's certainly not unique to terrorism studies that I think manifests in particularly problematic ways in terrorism studies, and this includes critical terrorism studies. So people who try to really question how we're applying the term terrorism in ways in which it's unfair and racist. But there's a like a trifecta of terrorism studies journals, terrorism and political violence, studies in conflict and terrorism, and critical studies on terrorism. And I think for some people, work that is not published in those journals somehow does not become part of the terrorism canon, which is problematic for a number of reasons. A, there is a ton of work on terrorism published in other journals within politics and IR um, that are not those three journals, so much of which is quite problematic and would benefit from engaging more with the terrorism studies journals, but some of which is quite interesting and, and really useful. But even beyond that, like I think in the earlier days post 9-11 of when we were sort of creating this semi-coherent field of terrorism studies, one of the strengths of that research is that it was very interdisciplinary and that there were people from sociology and politics and psychology and various sort of regional and area specializations coming together and, and doing that kind of work. And I worry we sort of moved away from that interdisciplinarity uh, because a lot of the work, especially on the far right and on white supremacy, is not in politics, unfortunately. Or if it is, it's in other subfields like U.S. politics or race, ethnicity and politics or, or critical IR, things that terrorism scholars might not engage with on a day-to-day basis. But it's also in increasingly, I find sociology very helpful for my work. And of course, a feminist thought and Black political thought Black studies, Africana studies, because I come from the U.S. context and those groups are, are really salient uh, in how we think about terrorism in those contexts. So that which is all to say, like a plea to everyone doing this work that terrorism studies is what we make of it and should really include people who do work on things that we might consider terrorism or extremism, but perhaps use different terminology or understand those terms in different ways. I think we'll get more holistic perspectives and a wider range of people from marginalized backgrounds whose work we engage with if we look more broadly. I think linking back to the previous episode that we had on the podcast with Professor Sunny Singh, where we discussed um, the academy and academia in itself as 
a site of colonial power and of producing colonial knowledge. And when you're trying to do the kind of work that we are that questions this, it's perhaps not surprising that the institution, the academy, doesn't support you, (laughs) doesn't help you, doesn't give you the hours that you need to do the work that you need to do, because that's not what it was designed to do. No, not at all. And when you're doing work that explicitly challenges systems, like my work is not on academia, it's on governmental political institutions, national security institutions. But I notice similar elements of institutional white supremacy in the state as in universities. Uh, And I guess in the UK, there's even less of a divide there because all universities are technically state institutions, whereas in the US, there's more variation. But, and I'm sure you've gotten many of these sorts of comments as well from from people who, who think they mean well, like, why do you think that racism is necessary to explain responses to white supremacist violence? Can't we explain this without racism? Those sorts of comments from other academics who are, again, I think, well-meaning and are, and think they're being helpful. And it's, it's such, it's just such an odd thing to come up against. And again, it's really minor in response to like actual abuse that scholars of color have to deal with who are working on these topics, but it is just baffling to me, it is and it isn't, the, the backlash that work that seeks to challenge existing power structures faces, but a system that likes to present itself encouraging free thought and freedom of expression and dialogue and, and innovation and, and all of those buzzwords, but is really like a really at its core neoliberal institution. And I think Aurelian Mondon has done some, some writing and thinking on this. And I think he says it very well that like anybody who thinks that academic institutions are are leftist or progressive has never worked within an academic institution. (laughs) Yeah, there was just research this week, wasn't it, published by a particular academic, I don't want to say his name for reasons, where they claimed again that academia was an extremely left-wing place and right-wing academics or academics that challenged the left-wing ideology were being silenced and they were not welcomed in academia. And it's, it's like, he is a very very well-established academic. So he works within the structure. And and I'm always like, what? How can you work within academia and think that? And like the the fact that he can make that statement and and do so publicly and face no repercussions in terms of like his promotion or his salary or or service or administrative roles that he might be assigned or, or and like no real serious consequences for saying something like that. I think just serves to show how hollow his point is. And he's certainly not alone in making that argument, but like even before we get to the thing, the question of like, if you think academic institutions are liberal or leftist, you've never been inside a leftist institution before, but then also like you're, you're undercutting yourself by the fact that you can say these things and there will be no consequences for you. It's usually the people who say these things that claim they're being silenced which is great. I just, I wish it was silenced like that and canceled, you know, I'd get a book deal. I would be on the BBC. I would be on the, on the broadsheets. If we could all be canceled and silenced the way these people are being canceled and silenced, I think we would be doing great. (laughs) Like being silenced is a great way to get a platform to spread your voice. It it really, being silenced makes you really loud. It turns out. You could put it on your CV under impact. I was silenced. (laughs) 
too real. I was wondering if you could talk to us about what, in your opinion, are the the similarities between white supremacist groups in the UK, not just in the UK, in the US and Europe, but also any key differences between the two? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, and this is a theme throughout my work, that there are far more similarities than I think people in the US would like to admit in, in how, like, I think about this always in the context of Germany, because most of my work is there, in how inefficient and problematic a lot of the German state's responses to white supremacy have been. But also that goes the other way, that European countries and European institutions are, are far more similar to the U.S., than they would like to believe. Uh, And I think like a good example of this is, okay, so in Germany, there is a movement called the Reichsbürger movement, uh, literally citizens of the Reich. So people who believe that the current government is illegitimate, that legitimate government is the the Prussian regime from the late 19th century. Uh, And there are a lot of similarities here actually to the sovereign citizen movement in the US. And I think there's a lot to be learned here from those similarities, I'm doing some some reading and writing about this right now, because I think as we see increasing cooperation in the U.S. between militias and sovereign citizens and anti-vaxxers, uh, and there's increasingly overlap between these ideologies, the same is true in Germany. The so-called Querdenker movement, literally like thinking on slant uh, or thinking a little bit differently, which is the terminology that's used broadly for the anti-vax, 5G conspiracy, COVID isn't real, that whole group of people has ended up cooperating in protests and increasingly in more militant circles very closely with the Reichsbürger, with these sort of sovereign citizen-like individuals and and groups. So there was unfortunately a lot of, of uncomfortable overlap here along very similar ideological lines, which which again should not surprise us because these are all at their core, movements that, if, even if not always overtly racist, have a lot to say about the proper positioning of, say, Jewish people, populations of color within society, and root the main problems in society within sort of more equal treatment or countries moving more to the left. And there are always racialized tones to that in the U.S. and in Western Central Europe. So that would be similarities. Differences, I think, are just historical legacies. Although increasingly, I think there are probably more similarities here than differences as well. I mean, the obvious difference is that the U.S. itself was a European colony. uh, And so you have legacies of colonialism on U.S. soil in the form of indigenous genocide. You also have an enormous institution of slavery in which there is really no contemporary comparison in, in Western Europe. At the same time, I think we need to talk a lot more about the British involvement in the slave trade, uh, especially in the Caribbean, and similar practices that took place in the Belgian Congo, in Namibia, when Germany colonized Namibia, in North Africa, throughout the French Empire, and so on. But there are differences here in where particular kinds of violence occurred historically. And so, so in Europe, a lot of violence against racialized minorities, at least until the middle of the 20th century, occurred overseas. And that is not the case in the US. I mean, not to say that we didn't also do that overseas in the Philippines and elsewhere, because we did. But we were also much more used to observing racialized violence, hate crimes, acts of terror against Black people and, and Native Americans at home. And so I think that sort of numbs you 
a little bit to seeing that kind of violence. And so it takes a lot more to shake people out of that. Oh, this is just how we expect violence to play out day to day in the U.S. Whereas in European countries, that history is not as long. And again, I know I'm making some pretty broad generalizations here, and I think there are lots more similarities than depth, but there are there is nuance here in different historical legacies that I think plays out somewhat differently in how you observe patterns of violence and how people respond to that nowadays. A lot of the time, people who do work on the far right and white supremacy in the present, you know, not looking at it historically, get a backlash saying that we are exaggerating, that the threat from the far right is not that big. It is not that big deal. Essentially, let's calm down about it and look at it from a more rational perspective and a more, to use an academic term, desecuritized perspective. So how would you respond to that kind of criticism of the work, the modern work on the far right or the work on the modern far right? I want the people who make that criticism to go and sit down with a Black community in Chicago or a Muslim community in Dearborn, Michigan or in New York City. And I want that them to make that argument to the members of that community and have to deal with the answer which is a short response to your question, but I think gets at just the importance of positionality in understanding environments in which that statement even becomes thinkable. And I don't want to be to like sensationalize. And that's not what I think people are doing when they say that the far right and white supremacist violence are very serious threats. I think they are finally, very belatedly, acknowledging deep, long histories, not only in the U.S., but also in European countries, of systematic violence, not always physical, but often epistemic, emotional, uh, targeted against entire communities, uh, creating, putting them in a pre-criminal space and treating them as suspects. And, And to say that that sort of treatment of historically excluded communities is A, disconnected from current far-right and white supremacist violence, that these aren't part of the same thing, and B, that that sort of treatment is being exaggerated or insignificant, strikes me as deeply offensive and also empirically inaccurate. I guess it's the same criticism that we both get in our work, you know, that is a misunderstanding what we say when we say that we need to focus on the far right or that the far right is a threat and is a threat that is not being dealt with at the same level as, you know, Islamic extremism or terrorism is that people think that we want to be, uh, we want more terrorism powers, that we want the terrorism powers to be widened. And that's not what we're saying. And it's never what we're saying. And I think there's something to be said about we don't want to have more terrorism. We don't want the terrorism powers to be applied to more people. However, this is what we have now. This is how the label is applied now. And let's look at how this is being done in a very racialized manner and in a way that is continuing to, in many ways, reinforce the same white supremacist violence that we are highlighting. Exactly. Like We can't solve the problem down the road of overreaching terrorism powers and the problems within the, the, I think, unsolvable problems within the counterterrorism apparatus if we don't first acknowledge that there is a problem (laughs) and that that problem is highly racialized uh, in how we construct these threats and how we respond to them. 
and that the problem is real and that whether or not we use the word terrorism to describe the threat, the threat is real. It's not being sensationalized. And like you said, it is being felt by people of color primarily. They are the ones that are feeling it more than those of us doing the research. And to that's I come on the same side as you and that, that to say that this is an exaggeration and that the threat is not as bad as we make it seem because it is being felt mostly by a marginalized community. It goes to the roots of the problem of academia in general and terrorism studies in general, that it tends to overlook this kind of experience, the lived experience, but also the research and the work being done by other communities. Couldn't have said it better myself. Agree 100%. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much, Anna. It was such a pleasure to have you on. And we've gone over the time and we could have gone on for longer even because we have so much in common in our research, but also this is a topic that we're both very passionate about. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about this with you today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was Dr. Anna Meyer. You can find her on Twitter at AnnaMeyerPS. Anna and I will be hosting a live conversation on Twitter Spaces this Thursday at 9.30pm. If you haven't experienced Twitter Spaces yet, it's basically like a live recording of a podcast episode. We did the Twitter Live Spaces last week for the first time with Steph Halmhofer, and it was a big success. I want to thank everyone for joining. And I really hope to see as many of you there this Thursday. This is your chance to hear from Anna live and ask any questions you may have. It is a great opportunity and it's great fun, so I really hope to see you there. I also wanted to remind you that this Saturday, the 5th of February at 9.30pm UK time is our live Frenemies book club meeting. All monthly Frenemies supporters will receive the link to the live Zoom meeting later on this week. There's still time for you to join. You can just become a monthly supporter over at Coffee. The link is in the episode description. I know I'm behind in uploading the book club meetings as bonus episodes, but I will get there as soon as I can. Thank you for your patience. If you enjoyed this episode, tell everyone you know. Click the share button on your podcast app. Tweet about it, post it on Facebook, do an interpretive dance, sing, whatever you need to do to help spread the word about enemies of the people. You know, we have no sponsors or advertisers, so we really rely on your support for our growth. So thank you so much for listening, sharing, rating, and reviewing our show. You can find us on Twitter at EnemiesPod. I'm on Twitter at Maria W. Norris. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next week for more Enemies of the People. (laughs) 